This is Kestrom Pantera. You're listening to Hobo Radio. I directed Pretty Problems. We're going to talk about that, and you can watch it on Hulu. And now, your host, miniature dog enthusiast, Joel Murphy. Hello again. I'm Joel Murphy. This is Hobo Radio. And today, I have an interview with musician and director Kestrin Pantera. And it is a great chat, and I know that you're going to enjoy it. I did, at the top, want to take a quick note to say that this was recorded last week, and as I am releasing it now, we are in the middle of both a WGA and a SAG after a strike. And so, while this interview is about Kestrin and her entire career, it is obviously tied to her independent film Pretty Problems being available on Hulu. So I did want to take a moment just to note that while Kestrin directed that film, it was written by Britt Rentschler, Michael Tennant, and Charlotte Ubin, who all also act in the film, alongside J.J. Nolan, Graham Outbridge, and Alex Klein, and the rest of the cast. And this film would not exist without the labor of the actors and the writers that are currently on strike. And obviously, I, I'm a writer myself. I, I support the strikes. I think they're important. I think what they're fighting for is a just cause. And I wanted to make sure to make all of that clear before we get into the interview, which, like I said, was recorded last week. And speaking of the interview... I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. As you'll hear, I saw Kestrin perform with the Middle-Aged Dad Jam Band, which is the the band that David Wayne and Ken Marino started and that uh, I discussed on a previous episode that I saw the show in May where Weird Al Yankovic performed and a lot of other surprise guests. And as I started digging more into Kestrin's career, like I, I got really interested. I thought she was a musician when I saw her. And then the, the more I dug, the more I realized that there was a lot to talk about here. And I reached out and uh, we had a really great chat. And I also just really enjoyed this film, Pretty Problems. I found it really funny and really surprising and really heartfelt. And it's beautifully shot. And I, I, the last thing I wanted to note before we start is uh, a funny thing happened because of this interview. As you'll hear, one of the things that we talk about is the karaoke RV that her and her husband run, which is the RVIP. It comes up in the interview and I ask if it's still going and she invited me to a party that they were having which I did end up going to, and it was funny because it hit me, this film Pretty Problems, it's about this woman, Kat, who uh, befriends someone, 
this character, Lindsay, and kind of on the spot uh, upon their first meeting, invites her to this uh, exotic location for a vacation weekend. And, and Lindsay and her husband decide to go. And it was, it struck me as I was driving on Saturday night to this karaoke event that I was in fact <laughs> Lindsay and I, I was similar to the character in the film. I was wondering if this person that I had just met, uh, what they were inviting me to and what I was in for. And so I did enjoy watching the movie and then feeling like I became a part of the movie. And I have to say, when I got to the party, I, I had a blast. It was so much fun. Uh, I got to go inside the RV, which was really cool. I got to see some karaoke, including uh, there was someone named Sylvia, who have Sylvia, if you're listening, you, you absolutely crushed uh, Nirvana, Teen Spirit. Uh, I also got to see uh, Randy Sklar sing a Doobie Brothers song that was delightful. But the, the absolute highlight, too, for me was seeing Kestrin's husband, Jonathan Grubb, sing the pulp song Disco 2000 which he sold the hell out of, and I will treasure that memory <laughs> always. So uh, thank you, Kestrin, for, for inviting me. That was an absolute blast. And without further ado, here is this interview. Enjoy. Kestrin Pantera, right? That's mm -hmm. okay. That is such a cool name. Like that's, is that, is that a stage name or is that? No, it's on my license. It's my birth certificate name. Wow. The Pantera is your last name. Yeah. My dad is Dr. Commander Pantera. People think he's a hippie because he named me Kestrin, but he's a very by the book military dude. Commander Pantera sounds like the coolest 80s Arnold Schwarzenegger movie never made, honestly. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's basically my life, yes. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, well, I, so I am curious, like, uh, as, since we're talking about Commander Pantera, uh, like, I, because you, so you have this background. I, like I said, I saw you at the middle-aged dad jam band show, and that was kind of how I first became aware of you. And I, you're a director, obviously, and then, but you have this background touring with musicians like you're a classically trained cellist you know so you have all of these things so i'm trying to get a sense of like growing up what were you interested in and like what was did you what did you want to be like when you grew up well in a word cats you wanted to be cats <laughs> the musical or the animal <laughs> all of the above okay you know i was the only child of a really uh, kind of type A workaholic, um, very happy, good relationship with my dad, but always very driven and focused. And that was kind of the focus, you know, the message growing up was um, work really hard. And so I just was on a vacation and I realized how hard it was for me to relax by the beach with all these people. And we were on a great we were in Italy, like doing the Instagram thing that everyone <laughs> longs to do. Right, right. And it was it was difficult for me to hang out because I knew we had this, we had another gig coming up with the dad band and I wanted to make sure I knew my songs and I was bummed. I was missing some of the rehearsals and was worried, you know, I don't want to be the weak link. So 
I would say I take a very militaristic approach to having fun. <laughs> militaristic fun. And was it just you and the commander? That was that was it? Oh, yeah. no, my mom. Okay. There, there's a gen, right. Dr. Commander, Mrs. There's a Pantera. Mrs. Pantera. <laughs> yeah. Dr. and Mrs. Commander Pantera. Uh, Dr. Commander Pantera. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when you're growing up with someone who's on call all the time, there's always an emergency. And the, and even today, to this day, he tried to retire for three months and it didn't stick. But there's always an emergency phone call that is the worst day of someone's life that oh. is interrupting your dinner. Yeah. Every like three times a dinner. And you get really accepting of that because it's like, go take the call and save someone's life. Yeah. And you, you say know? you can't relax and have fun. These So if I... <laughs> piecing so together relax yeah. and have fun yeah so there, there's always that understanding there's a high very high empathy towards people who are contributing on a high level be it for the purposes of fun or for the purposes of literally saving someone's life and um so i i like that level of intensity immersion you know and i and, and that bodes really well for being on tour and and directing because there's always some sort of intense situation often that needs to be approached with a sense of calm and the easiest way i mean i don't know i'm not a doctor but and i'm pretty sure my dad doesn't do it this way but i imagine that when i'm in a situation where i want help that the the attitude of kindness and kind of a relaxing tone is the thing that will help the situation from right. yeah. the outside yeah yeah which which i think you have you have a very relaxing tone I feel like. <laughs> I think you convey that. And I I would also imagine uh touring with uh musicians and also being a director, I could see how this is a good skill to be the responsible, reassuring one. I think they need that, especially musicians, I think. Yeah. And and you know, with this band or any band in particular, this was it took a while for me to learn this in my kind of twenties growing up playing in rock bands. And I really learned it from throwing karaoke parties and owning a karaoke bar for 10 years that your job in a band is to make everyone else sound as good as possible. And yeah. that's how you can tell the best musician in the room is they make everyone else sound fucking great and feel good. And, yeah. you know, the best path to them sounding good is usually feeling good. And that's very similar to the role of directing where you're supporting everyone and doing their best work. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, all right. The, how did the cello come into your life? Was that like, were you interested in that as a kid? Was that foisted upon you as a kid? Like, Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in a public school system where in fourth grade, the music teacher came and introduced all the instruments and said, you got to pick one of these for fifth grade. Okay, yeah. And the cello... I noticed a few things about it. Number one, it sounded awesome. It had the beautiful high range and a, this beautiful deep low range that is often said to mimic the human voice and be the most similar to mm -hmm. the human voice. And it didn't sound annoying like the violins. No offense, <laughs> violins. Some, <laughs> violins are beautiful. Um, but you could sit down when you played and you could talk when you played. Smart. And I noticed the violins yeah. didn't have that yeah. option. Yeah. 
So you, there's a trade-off of having, and of course now when I play rock shows, I don't even sit, I stand up most of the time, but usually you sit when you play the cello. And I, the lazy part of me thought that that was going to be a long-term win and, and the talking, and I did end up talking. So now I do, you know, talk, I sing and play the cello and it's nice at least to start sitting and then surprise yeah, yeah. people by standing up. <laughs> she can stand. Well, <laughs> she can stand. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's showmanship. I get that. That's good. Um, so, but it, so your BIOS is classically trained. So then, college? Did you go to college for? Yeah. Well, no, well, you. So I started in fifth grade. You're orc dork. You're in the class. Mm-hmm. Then. If you get to be first chair at a certain point, and I don't know, and I think the doctor, the militaristic, uh, like family was like, all right, if you're first chair and she's going to be good at this, we're going to get private lessons, and then you got to practice all the time and be really aggressive about it. So the that's commander, what the commander's going to make sure you're the best. The commander the did. Cellist. Into, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then it was all state orchestras, and my cello teachers, this amazing woman, Valerie Walden, who was a PhD, you know, superstar teacher who just happened to be in our weird, you know, hole of a town in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it was, you know, something that carried me through elementary school, middle school, then you do all state orchestras, and then you get to go see all the other best people in all the schools statewide and the nationwide. And in high school, that's where it comes to the shift of Am I going to do this forever and practice seven hours a day and be the best? Yeah. Or am I going to be kind of a middling grade? Or is this it? Is high school the peak? Yeah. 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 And I noticed that the peak for a lot of people, when you're a classically trained musician, the goal is to become a member of a symphony orchestra of a world-class city, I see which that. entails yeah. hiding behind a curtain and auditioning mm-hmm. blind. And in order to get that level of audition and that level of proficiency, you have to practice seven hours a day. And then ultimately you get to sit in a pit in the ground in a hole at the bottom of the stage. You know, when you and put it like, that way. <laughs> <laughs> like looking at the reward continuum, I was like, well, I mean, I like to sing. I mean, right. I can do, how about... How about we split the difference? So I ultimately had more fun, you know, doing the plays and getting to sing in the shows and and kept playing in the orchestra. But that was high school, I think, is for any classically trained musicians life, the turning point. I mean, some people it's fifth grade or middle school. You know, yeah. by the time I started, some people were making the pro the Olympic decision. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, it was 10th grade. So then, so you started doing the plays like you were doing, you, you kind of shifted to acting at that point. I continued doing both. But, but you but were when, like, yeah. When you, when you choose, you're like, am I going to be in the orchestra in the pit at the stage or am I going to do the play? You know, right. I did the yeah. play, but I stayed in the school orchestra and did all the, you know, all state stuff. And then I played in the symphony in college as well. Oh, okay. And I yeah. did a bunch of recording. Um, Yeah. And then, so how do you start touring with rock bands? Like, where does that come along? I moved to Taipei, Taiwan after college for a couple of years um, to learn how to speak Mandarin. And I didn't have the balls to move to L.A. yet. 
It seemed like a good skill. <laughs> That's it's so fast. I didn't have the, the balls to move to LA. So I moved to a country that I had to learn the language. Like that was less intimidating <laughs> to you than LA. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe I wasn't clear. Yeah. Or maybe maybe it was a lack of clarity. It seemed like there was a new thing, a new skill to achieve. And so I was coming home from Taiwan and someone there, an expat, because living in a foreign country for a really long time is a form of avoiding responsibility in a lot yeah. of ways as an expat. And until you become a lifer, that's what we called it. It was like, oh, they're a lifer. Like they're marrying someone from the country and they're there now. Yeah. But otherwise it is a little bit like you're not necessarily doing your true life's thing unless you're running an import export business or a school or or something like that. You're kind of dicking around if you're in your 20s, yeah. generally speaking. And that's what your 20s are for, I, I think, is dicking around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I was getting a skill and making money and doing mm -hmm cool work. So someone asked, what do you want to do in real life when you're done avoiding responsibility? And I said, well, I've always wanted to make movies. Mm -hmm. And they said, how do you do that? And I said, well, I guess you got to move to LA. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay. That and it was, was the like clarity. the crystal cracked. It was yeah. just, it all <laughs> fell down. And I was like, shit, I got to move to LA. So within like two or three months, my visa was up. It was time to go. I didn't want to extend. And I I, my life or friends have live extraordinarily great lives, but it seemed like there was something else I had to investigate. So I came to LA and one of my friends who I met in Thailand, partying in Thailand, because that's what you do for vacation when you live in Taiwan. Sure. Get yeah. on a two hour flight yeah. to Thailand. Mm -hmm. He came and visited me in LA and he was like, you play the cello? You got to put a fucking pickup on that thing and rot the fuck out. <laughs> And that was a message that came at me left and right. And mostly from dudes in bands who were like, what you play the cello. And it, it was, it was like, like being sucked into it. Um, and then the, and then the bands got bigger and baller who were like, what you play the cello. <laughs> and it still continues to this very day. And I did put a pickup on it and I did learn to rock the fuck out. It was a challenge. There was a learning curve coming from classical training to yeah. learning how to jam and hang out. I, like you have to undo a lot of weird control freak type A. It's almost like deprogramming from a cult or something. <laughs> I saw tar. So that, that makes sense. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a friend of mine who was actually the keyboard player for my morning jacket, uh, was also classically trained and a recovering classic pianist. And he recommended this book. Um, oh my God. I, I follow them and I know the word uh, mastery. Um, oh my God. Kenny. Oh my God. Kenny, wait, hang on. I got to look it up right now. Effortless mastery, effortless mastery. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was a book about for, for people in that mindset. And that book changed my life. Nice. Um, you still have to practice and I would probably be a lot better if I did practice more, but that, that, that was when the turning point happened. Nice. And uh, yeah. And I would imagine like, so it's sort of in a rock band, it's like a niche instrument. Like it's, you, if you have that skill, not everybody, it kind of sets you apart, right? Like that's why you were so sought after is like, it's not, we can find 10 guitarists. We can find 10 bass players, but you play the cello. Like that's unique, you know? Yeah, it's nice to be in a niche where there aren't that many 
other people. Yeah. There are, there's an extraordinary community of string musicians and there are some awesome ones out there. Um, yeah. And it's just an honor and it, it's great to get to do, you know, now it, it went from being a thing that I did in my twenties professionally as a career to, you know, semi-retirement. And now it's like popping out of retirement and it's a hobby. That's awesome. Pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, to, to say that I kind of mentioned it, but like for people that are listening, if if they don't know, like, so the middle-aged dad jam band, that's where I, I saw you. That's, it's like uh, the guys from the state, it's Ken Marino and it's David Wayne. Like they're, the show that I saw had Joe Latruglio was there. It's like, they're kind of, I don't know. Yeah. They're jam band that they put together uh, with just them. And then like a series of musicians, Weird Al was there when I saw it, which was really cool. Uh, but yeah. So how did, how did you connect with those guys? Like, where did that come from? That happened because I sang the time warp <laughs> and I was transported to another dimension where I was suddenly singing Grand Funk Railroad with Weird Al Yankovic. Um, <laughs> but it actually was that I was uh, walking past a middle-aged dad jam band in full costume on Halloween. Um, and we saw their set list. And there was like thousands of people around. It was like one of those Mardi Gras, the streets blocked off trick-or-treating right. situations. So they're just playing for the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone was in full costume. So no one had any idea who anyone else was. It's mm -hmm. my favorite way to meet people. Nice. And they, they were great. We took some video and I helped them sound check earlier. So I had established initial contact and borderline recognition, face recognition with each one where everyone wanted to know how their levels sounded when I was telling them the vocals were too low. We did this impromptu sound check. Which this goes back to what you were saying about making everyone else sound good. So you yes. got that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like I, it immediately seemed like that vocal was too low. And then everyone else was like, how am I, how am I, how am I? And then we gave them a little sound check and we're like, all right, rock on. And came back, they were wailing. Hundreds of people are there. It's nighttime, totally different vibe. I take some video of them because they were sounding really good. And I was like, every band wants video of them sounding good. Of course, yeah. And we were getting ready to leave. And my friend said, dude, they're going to play the Time Warp next. I see their set list. And <laughs> that's our song. So we decided to stick around for the time warp and the lead singer who I'll call fat clown because he was in a fat suit with the <laughs> clown and a face thing. Um, <laughs> didn't instantly know the words in a way that made me feel confident <laughs> or like nervous for them. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're watching, we, we you know, the words. The front row. Yeah. yeah. We knew the words. Yeah. And there was just a hesitation or something where I was like, Oh shit. And then, the whole song played before my eyes where there's a huge part where there's two women who sing there's magenta yeah. and columbia yes and that's a huge part of the song mm -hmm. and i was like shit if this guy doesn't know like this opening line i'm just projecting forward he's not gonna see this coming yeah yeah like this could be <laughs> weird for them yeah and in the meantime, I'm in the front row cheering them on mm -hmm. and singing along. Rocky Horror is the right kind of song to chant along with the band because that's part of the culture of Rocky Horror is that oh, you yeah, say the Yeah, it's the screenings. That's that's the culture of Rocky Horror for sure. Yeah. 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 So it felt appropriate and not rude right. to, yeah, to yeah. be singing along in the crowd. Yeah. That's the song you sing along with. And every band loves it when people sing along. From my past experience, I can make that judgment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and... So we started shouting along and then Santa, the lead guitar player, hands me the mic. 
I love and it's this like, is how it. you're designating them. Yes, Santa gives us the mic mm -hmm. and the clown obliges. <laughs> and I roll up right about the magenta part where I know that they need it. And so I sing the magenta part and the Columbia part. And then we have this great thing. We do the time warp. Everyone sings. It's amazing. And afterwards, uh, a friend of mine is like, I think David Wayne plays the drums. That might be David Wayne. And it was. And I had all this great video that we took. So I posted some of it and I tagged him. And then he found the tag and was like, can I get the high res version of this video file? I like to put together music video stuff of my band. And then I sent him a link and then it wasn't high, high quality enough. It wasn't high res enough. And then he started getting into the minutia of like video compression. And I was like, this is, these are my fucking people. I mean, he's a director. So yeah, that made the tracks. Like he's like, he wants a very specific, you know, yeah. And yeah. that's when I really felt the just joy and appreciation of a of uh of them in general and felt very aligned with the kind of att obsessive attention to detail that yeah, I yeah. I really I, I really enjoyed. Nice. And so then from there you're just you're in, like you you now you have a connection and you're So yeah, I mean it was very cow and then I invited him to a karaoke party and then um they invited me to a jam, which was filmed and then like posted. It's a very it's been a very public experience. Like the first time I met them while before I even knew, like I posted Halloween last year without even really realizing. And then they invited me to a jam and then they invited me to uh, guest on some shows. So the core group is this core group of dads. And then they have special guests that kind of cycle through amazing guests like Jackie Tone. I think you saw at your yeah. show. Yes. Yeah. Um, Weird Al. Mm -hmm. um beth dober joe latrulio uh natalie morales um so you know you when, when you get the call you, you you show up and do your best work and make everyone sound really good and um it's just a it's a blast yeah are you a like are you a middle-aged dad at this point or are you a guest are i you... mean i'm not a middle-aged dad i'm married to one so i have a good <laughs> sense of what it means to be one but um i just meant as, yeah. as the band like are you a core the core you... no the core i mean i think officially the core is john Spurney, david wayne ken marino um frank barrera who's a dp of like reno 911 they're all amazing yeah. eddie uh sweet teddy b is what he's called uh and, and um jordan katz those are the core members. Yeah. Okay. All right. But uh, yeah, because it seems so the show that I saw, it was like in a house in a backyard. Like it seemed sort of still informal. And then it seemed like you the last show that happened, it's already bigger. Like it's already expanded since then to like a larger venue. And it seems like they're touring. So it, it very much feels like it's like picking up momentum at this point. I think that's the the brilliance and magic of David Wayne and Ken Marino is that they'll do stuff for fun. And then because they're them, they can turn it into, you know, whatever they want because they're rock and roll superstars. Yeah, which it is uh, like just the last thing I will say about that is if you get a chance to see it, it's ridiculously fun. Like that was honestly, I think my wife and I like the most fun that we've had in L.A. just of like uh, like a, like where it felt like a thing. Like I love that when we saw it because it felt like you were part of probably like it felt like for you with the Halloween thing of just like, like you're really like in something, you know what I mean? Like it's like a house party that you feel like a part of, you know, like it, it had this very cool feel to it. Like it was very special. I felt like that first show, the one that you saw where we were saying uh, where Al and Jackie Tone sang was 
I remember it feeling crazy. Like it almost felt dangerous for a second. That's what I yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. I don't think I was explaining that well. Like it felt like you were getting away with something. Like it's yeah. I've seen a lot of shows in LA and stuff, but it's like it felt unsanctioned. Like it felt like, yeah, like it was just like a party, you know? Yeah, it was it was a very cool experience. Yeah. There was a moment where I was standing on stage and there were so many people and I was like, fuck, like I'm I and and that feeling of I, I like it. I had an acting teacher a long time ago. It was like there's sometimes when you're on stage and it feels a little bit dangerous, and that's mm-hmm. when you know it's on. Yeah. So go with it and yeah. like let it go. And then it turned into this like shockingly punk rock, but sweet and gentle thing because they they call in such a wonderful crowd of people who are gentle and kind, but also kind of punk rock and subversive. So it was an amazing communion between band and audience that night. Yeah, no, the crowd was was so like everyone was sweet, like everyone was cool in the crowd that like we interacted with and everything where. Yeah, it's like so it was a lot of people. But yeah, I definitely think there are shows that in that small space with that many people, it could have gone bad. But yeah, I think everybody was super supportive and just like like on the same page of having a good time. And it is that communal thing where it's like, again, the singing along where you kind of get in that thing, like it feels, it almost feels like church or something like it, you know, like everybody's a part of something shared. And I just like, yeah, that was such a special show. Like, I'm so glad that's the one we saw, you know, like it was very cool. Me too. Yeah. Thanks for coming. I'm glad you saw it. Yeah. All right. So that's it with that. Let's get back on track. <laughs> with, um, well, so I, I am curious because I think you this you were alluding to this, but I, I am curious. So you had it was like an RV, right? That you um, you were doing karaoke in. Is that what I read? Yes. So one of my kind of. I guess closest thing to a day job was. Um, and is a thing called the RVIP lounge, which is a mobile karaoke unit housed inside, inside a customized RV. Mm-hmm. We used to say it served as equal parts, transportation and entertainment, transportainment. <laughs> um, we uh, modified it, we, but we got an RV and we modified it with a bunch of friends. Um, our friend who was the CTO of Disney Imagineering. And so we got to do a bunch of crazy shit, like make robots talk and blinky Holy lights shit. and all these wow. programmable LEDs and just really gut it from the inside and turn it into a magical place. So it's like the Starship Enterprise on Mescaline meets Studio 54 in this little disco karaoke fun box. Does it still exist? Like, is it yeah. somewhere? Oh, this is all. Yeah. I got to see. You got to send me like yeah, videos or something. We're having a party Saturday. I'll invite you. Oh, shit. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it used to be a thing that we would take to festivals like South by Southwest and um, Comic-Con. And so there's a huge, uh, like a, a really close knit community from those events that have followed with us over the years. And we just threw a karaoke party and then put a banner on the outside of the RV and drove to all the coolest parties and then stole the people waiting in line outside. And, um, companies asked to sponsor it and it turned into a, like a 10 year partnership with Wired and Condé Nast. And we got to work with all these huge companies, just throwing the same weird ass party that we always did. We never changed it. It was yeah. never like a bachelor, no, no bachelorette parties or anything like that. It was like, you can sponsor this and then we will do exactly what we do in our own weird way. We retired during COVID yeah. and now, yeah, now it's kind of more like a hobby, yeah. a hobby activity. <laughs> But that's awesome. Yeah, this is all like it's very interesting. I ended up after the the middle aged dad jam band calling my dad because like 
my dad was a drummer in bands the whole time I was a kid. And it's like, he has this whole, and it's all the songs they play are like songs that my dad used to play. And like, then he bought a bar and it, he used to do karaoke. So it's like, you're all like in oh. that wheelhouse of like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very interesting experience. Like to when I stopped seeing my dad as like a dad and saw him sing purple rain, which was like, what? Like, is my dad cool? Like, I don't <laughs> Was he cool? I mean, did he, was he amazing? You got to see my dad sing Purple Rain. Like my dad looks like Kenny Rogers, but then <laughs> like can do, it, it'll surprise you like that. I would definitely. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. A very like, you know, we grew up, I grew up in a small town, like guy in like jean shorts and, you know, like a t-shirt that looks like Kenny Rogers, just like, you know, hitting the notes. Like it's, but like literally. Oh, I, I want him on the, I want to have him. I <laughs> That's like exactly the kind of surprise little like veiled threat, a cloaked threat that I like to see on the RVIP. I mean, he's he's very happily retired in South Carolina. But if I can get him to L.A., I, I'll definitely send him. He would love that like so much. He, but it's funny, like Ice Cream Man is a song that I've seen him do that Kim Marino did oh. like at the show. Like it's definitely anyway. But, uh, all, right. all right. So so you, you do the karaoke thing, but you. And you you toured with bands, but you you stated you came to L.A. You have this vision you're going to direct. And so then how does that go? Like, where, where does that start manifesting? So a lot of it came from the community that we generated by throwing parties, that it was a lot of people who operated cameras or just really liked karaoke or wanted to shoot a movie or or act in a movie or produce movies, but they hadn't quite gotten it together. They weren't quite right at the point of their career where it had happened. And I originally came to Los Angeles as an actor. And one of my friends who went on to be a big old director said that if you want to be an actor, you need to film yourself every single day and get Final Cut Pro is the one at the time. Now mm -hmm. we use Adobe Premiere Pro. That's what I use. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> um, he, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh they said, learn how to edit. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing you can do for your career. Yeah. And so I film myself every day and I started making short films every day. And I was doing that the whole time I was auditioning and making money, doing commercials, doing indie movies and playing in bands. And it occurred to me that a feature film is just, you know, 26 to 40 little short films strung together. Yeah. And then I could do that. And uh, because of the RVIP and the community that we generated and we had an RV. So we we're like, let's use this RV and make a movie kind of based on our experience. And um, I, you know, found some willing collaborators who it was the right time at their point in the career that it gave them an opportunity. And we made a, a little movie um, and it ended up selling to a company and getting released and got great reviews in the LA times, which was like, just me alone emailing people. There was no team. There were no agents. There was no support system. And then um, I got more opportunities to direct like stuff, you know, like uh, digital series and that sort of thing. And then we did it again in 2018, but bigger and baller where I asked all the TV stars in my life to star in it. And they said, yes. And then we got into South by, and I thought my whole world would change and everything would shift overnight and I would be big time. Um, we released in 2020, which was a really shitty year to yeah. <laughs> yeah. do anything. Yeah. Um, and then we did it again. <laughs> and we did it fucking again. Um, and that was pretty problems. 
Yeah. And everything that I would have prayed or wished that would have happened for my other mother's little helpers, my South by my first South by movie, all of the dreams came true with pretty problems. And um, it is still a dream come true unfolding as I speak to you right now, where we're finally getting it on the larger outlets. We had a theatrical release. We won the audience award. We got bought by IFC films and um, a lot of really amazing opportunities were generated as the result of the success of that movie that um, it's, it's great. It's better than I ever thought it would be. And I do think that I maybe needed, maybe I, I, I think I have the type of personality that perhaps like getting crap punched down into the ground a couple times, like was probably good for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need, well, you, this is the time to have the success. Like you're ready for it now. Like emotionally, is that what you're saying? Or... Yeah. yeah, I think I'm a better collaborator and a more mature collaborator. And yeah, I could have turned into a real little monster. I I think that I've burned through those neural pathways permanently. Yeah, um, just in terms of empathy and learning how to ask nicely for things, and <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. And it was, and it, it does get easier. It has gotten a lot more fun and a lot easier. Nice. So yeah, that's the how. Did that answer the question of it how yes. you go from acting to editing? Mm -hmm. I, this is yeah. the Castro Pantera, learn how to edit and make your shit right now rant. Which <laughs> is, I mean, I do think we're at such a point where it feels like, I don't know if you feel this, but like my, my optimistic take on like the future of uh, the industry is that like, I, I hope more people when they see, I don't know, studio systems saying like we want to eat actors bones as our soup or whatever their quotes are that, uh, I don't know, more people make stuff on their own and like find new avenues, you know, to distribute films and like to just make it like, I don't know that, like I said, maybe that's wildly optimistic, but I'm like hopeful that maybe we lead to some sort of indie revolution out of all of this. I like that. Yeah. I like that bright eyed mentality. I think that, you know, my visualization for the best case scenario would be that there, it is a successful negotiation and also people get to make all this great stuff in the meantime. And, you yeah. know, yeah. Well, I mean, there'll yeah. always be the studio side, you know, too, but it's yeah. like, yeah, I think, I think if I, I think that's what I'm saying for this time, if people can use the time to make things on their own, I think that that's a great thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there's, this is the time, this is the time to finish your script, yeah. rewrite your script, do a table read. Yeah. You know, share your work with other people. This is a great time to be in a band. Totally. You know, yeah. Workshop your stuff on a stage. Mm -hmm. You know, put up a put up a show. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. All right. So pretty problems. I watched it. I really enjoyed it. Like it's great. Uh and I I found this movie super fascinating because I am someone that I don't even try to do it, but I always when I watch movies. I kind of have this tendency to because it's just I think it's because I have a writing background like I kind of watch it and I go like I know what this movie is and like this is okay these the rich people they're going to be bad and like the this couple they're struggling and they're going to learn some lessons and they're going to reevaluate their own life like you know what I mean like I don't mean to do it but it's like in the first five minutes I'm like okay this is what this movie yeah. is and what I loved about this movie is it was not at all what I thought it was going to be that I had absolutely no idea 
what the journey of this film was. And I really loved that. You you beat my brain. So congratulations oh. on that. You're welcome. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I yeah, what do you want to, I haven't properly set it up. I don't know if you want to give like a, a log line or like a kind of the setup for the film. Yeah. Pretty Problems is the story of a somewhat unhappy unhappily married couple getting swept away uh, on a billionaire wine getaway weekend with a kind of, we call her the mad cat or character uh, sweeps <laughs> the wife away and um, boundaries are tested in, in a lot of ways yeah. and <laughs> purpose is found or not found. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 what I found so interesting is I, I think I came out of it still not being sure to feel about any character that, you know, like the the rich characters end up being way more self-aware than you think that they're going to be. And I almost feel like there's I don't want to give too much away because I people should definitely see this movie, which is available now on Hulu, if people don't know. But uh, that, you know, I feel like you could read it multiple ways, like you could decide these are rich people that are doing this because they're bored and this is amusing to them, or they they could be genuinely sweet people that want these people that aren't rich to have a really nice weekend with them. Like that you don't really know what their motivations are. And I don't feel like I was sure by the end who to believe or what to take away from it. And I, I found that really like, just, I don't know. It was great. Like it's a really fun place to be. I felt like the trap with the movie when we first read it was that like the rich guys are going to be these jock bro dicks. Yeah. And that was the thing to, you know, ex examine and tinker with. And so that was for me, the funnest part of exploring the material was how can, how empathetic can we make these characters that are unexpected? Yeah. And empathy bros was the, catchphrase we made up for the, for the guys that they're actually in a pretty good relationship with each yeah. other at least they're yeah. they're not that fucked up like they're pretty comfortable with the situation and they love one another and you know as friends like had yeah, a yeah. life partner yes you know? yeah yeah um and I, yeah i i just thought that if it was a hate if it was hateful towards every single character then that would be a bummer for me to edit for a year. But right. if, it, if we were at least able to find something to love in every character, despite their huge, huge, huge flaws, then that was something I wanted to look at. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like I said, I think throughout the movie, uh, I don't know, my my allegiance shifted of like, I, I would sympathize with someone and then they would do something <laughs> terrible or or whatever. I. I don't know where I landed. I think maybe I decided that Kat is is my favorite character. <laughs> like really? I don't know. Yeah, I think at the end, okay. like like she kind of has this fascinating moment at the end that like really made me love her. Like you know, I love Kat. I mean, I have a. I I feel like I wanted to love. I had to have a personal relationship of love with each yeah. character. Um, it just feels so bitter and hateful I, I just don't want to make something that's bitter and hateful right and i think life is more complicated than just that's a bad guy that's a good guy when I, and then that's why i liked it because it's yeah i mean you definitely want to 
examine wealth and the disparity of these lives, but it's like you also just, yeah, I, I think it's lazy to just make them one dimensional cartoon characters. Like, you know, like they're, they're still people. They still, you know, like have interiority, even if, you know, they might do things that feel strange to poor people or like, you know, have these lives that feel inaccessible, you know? And I, I, I don't know. I really loved that. Like, I, yeah, I thought you nailed that. Thank you. There were so many riffs that Graham Outerbridge, who played the primary billionaire in the movie, would do that. Did we didn't even get him in the movie? Just like one of them was the uh, the protagonist saying that they drove up to make it. You know, it was like a five hour drive, and Graham was like, "Wow, driving." How is, <laughs> how is it these days? You know. <laughs> I do like oh, yeah. the one scene that I that I think like you met, like it really tapped into anxiety that I have had, like growing up, like not having a lot of money and like being in situations where you are with people that have more money than you is the the wine tasting scene where it's like you have the wealthy characters just being like, I, I'll get a case of wine. Let me get two cases of wine. And and you see it was a Jack, right? Like being like, yeah. well, I'll get one bottle. and. And at this point, Lindsay is like, she wants, she's trying to camouflage herself to be a part. So she's like, we'll get a case. And it's, they do not have the money to get the wine and they stay behind and they have this kind of argument about it where she's like, we have to get the wine. They, we said we were going to have the wine and he's like, we can't afford it. And then they get back to the house with the wine and it's the what you guys have what now like they the rich people have already forgotten all of this because it didn't it didn't mean anything to them but to people that don't have money it is this most anxiety provoking it's all you can think about and it's they have never they're not paying attention to you they they wouldn't notice if you got wine or didn't get wine <laughs> like but i don't know it just really captured that i've had that exact anxiety <laughs> Like in the past. Yeah. 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 I had an experience. So I grew up in this town called Visalia, which is outside of Fresno. It's like a little pocket of Arizona nestled in the heart of California. Um, really poor agricultural community, mostly like a lot of like agricultural workers and not a lot going on. And um then I had this opportunity to go to this boarding school in high school. And so I moved from like the highest teen pregnancy rate in the whole country at the time <laughs> and highest like methamphetamine rate, really a lot of stuff going on there to this castle on a hill Oh wow! <laughs> uh, in Pebble Beach. It was like Nat King Cole literally had a castle in Pebble Beach and it was this school in Pebble Beach where I got to attend and I would ping pong between these two environments and I, I remember just um, getting coffee when getting coffee wasn't a thing when, when yeah. I was 16. It wasn't yeah. a thing, but it was normal to some of my friends. And I remember being stressed out about how I wanted to get a latte because everyone was getting a latte, but I didn't know if I could afford to get a latte and just going through this, like a lot of the stuff in the movie that Michael Tennant, who's an amazing writer, wrote it all. But there was so much that I identified with. Yeah. And, then, you know, and then even being able to make the movie where it's like, you you know, if you've been around people like that enough, 
at least you can have empathy and love and appreciation for like the the have more side and then but like you're you know you know where you come from right yes yeah (laughs) yeah i remember i had um when i was a kid i had a friend that had his family had a beach house and you know we were best friends and it was like his family very sweetly invited me to like you can stay with us for it was like two or three weeks at this beach house over the summer and then it was like you know so I'm going to go and I can stay with them. But then it's, you know, uh, my buddy being like, oh, let's let's do that. Let's play mini golf. Let's do this. And it's like I have the money. I know how much money I have to last me three weeks. And he is just like, let's do this. Let's get pizza. Let's, you know, and just like like county and like, oh, I'm not I'm not hungry. You know, like, why don't you get some food? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it gives me anxiety even just talking about it. Right? Stuff that I don't yeah. think about. Or like I thought about it when I was doing the movie, but going back to those times where I was constantly in that situation, which is a privileged situation in and of itself. Well, yeah, because you're still right? you're getting to experience. You this. get to go to the beach house. Yeah, like that's the, the other thing. Is like, yeah, yeah, poor me. Like then we went out on the beach, you know, the oceanfront property that they were staying on, and got to hang out on the beach all day. So yeah, like yeah, what is this story ultimately about? I couldn't play mini golf you know like (laughs) well but it is weird it is a thing where you're just income inequality is up in your face and it isn't a grand sweeping gesture as much as it is these little tiny small moments yeah but but i think you're totally right that it's like i don't think about this stuff and then i watch the movie and it's like it's there like it's always like there somewhere like you never quite lose that i think if you've experienced that (laughs) like it it taps into something that you like forgot existed. Yeah. I also think there's something uniquely American about it. Probably. Yeah. We're the richest country in the world. Yeah. So even if you're broke in America, you're still richer than a lot of people, like a third of the world's population. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And again, it's like, you know, yeah. Like, I mean, I lived in a a house where it's like, we, you know, we never had name brand cereal or like we bought clothes from thrift stores, but it's like, I had a house and I, you know, lived in the suburbs and like, yeah, it is. I had a level of security, you know, growing up. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I, but I do think with this one, it was like, you know, we're dealing with stuff and it's real stuff and there are emotional moments in it. But ultimately, I just want to laugh. I don't watch dramas. Well, I was going to say too, like drama. I'm like, yeah. I don't watch. I'm sorry. Yeah. I yeah. also. Yeah, that's probably fair. That I'm like if someone's listening to this and they haven't watched it, this movie is very funny. Like I maybe have not conveyed like how much I laughed during it when I'm like it tapped into my primal anxiety. But no, it's a very funny movie. <laughs> like, Yeah. All I want to do is make comedies and like I, I used to joke during our intros that there are a lot of important films. <laughs> and I just want you to know that this isn't one of them. I hope yeah. you like dicks. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and also to be clear, to sell this movie, there is a fight sequence that involves someone hitting someone else with a dildo. So like, don't don't worry. This is not. <laughs> This is not a weighty drama. This is <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It is called Pretty Problems for a reason. Like there it is still, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I also yeah. I do I wrote down because I also this this feels like a very LA thing to me, but uh the the reference to biodynamic wine perked my ears up because 
my wife and I went out to like an anniversary dinner at a place, and they ha- that was the first time I'd seen that word on a menu where I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, the, the idea of biodynamic wine. I honestly didn't know what biodynamic was until the scene, until we shot the scene. I still don't and know what it is. I just knew I saw it on a menu. <laughs> it's everywhere now. Yeah. It was, I felt like they, and, and someone on the set who was familiar with the wine company explained it to me in kind of a dismissive way. Like you, <laughs> you don't know trash. about biodynamic wine. Like, sorry. <laughs> and then, um, and now I see it, you know, on signs all over the place. And right. Yeah. I, I still don't know what it means. No, not at all. I I have no clue. Yeah. I have no clue what it means, except that the menu at the restaurant that I went to was very proud of it. That's what I got from it. Like they, they needed us to know that their wine was biodynamic. (laughs) (laughs) That was central to their selling point. Yeah. No clue. Absolutely no clue. (laughs) Noted. Yeah. All right. Yeah. File that away. So now. Yeah. 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 Um. So, so yeah, so we kind of covered it, but like, so you, you kind of did a festival thing with this. It's now available on Hulu. Uh, what, like, I don't know where is it? It's out in the world now, right? Like where, where are you at? It's out in the world. Yeah. It's out in the world. And it's weird when you release a movie in movie theaters and then you, you know, you're, you're kind of exclusively available in some ways, but it's, it's a crazy milestone to think, God, we're so far into this story. And all of a sudden today, more people can see it than have ever had access to it the entire time. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the, the homecoming joyful, you know, home end cap or, and, and it was cool to be featured on the front page of that um, streamer, but yeah, I I think also, I think it's a good time for people to laugh. Yes, I, I was yeah. recently traveling, and America seems very tightly wound, and it seems like a good time for us to all just chill out a little bit. And yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, yeah, I definitely enjoyed the you know just the catharsis of yeah, like, let's just watch something fun like and that you know it's well shot and uh, I also love just like. I, I feel like I can see the the you know the mu- musician influence and maybe the the RVIP influence of just a lot of the colors in it. You have a lot of like you know like really cool color palettes and you know lights on people's faces as they are singing karaoke or you know. Yeah, the karaoke scenes. I've shot a lot of karaoke scenes in my time, and that was definitely one of the the funnest when we were shooting that scene. The DP Alyssa Bricado set up the lights and it looks a lot like my actual karaoke bar. There was a scene where the women were talking on the couch, but it needed to feel kind of cramped and intensely party was happening, but not really have a party happening for audio, of course. So the way that our DP suggested we achieve that was to have Charlotte Ubbin, who played the girl Carrie, she was wearing this sequin skirt and her butt looked like a disco ball. And she just, we just had her wiggle her butt in front of the camera. The whole time we shot the scene, there was this waggling butt. And Charlotte Ubbin is such a funny actress. Someone compared her in a review to Patsy Stone from AbFab, and it was the greatest day of my entire life. I think I peaked. But, um, and she just sat there and like swayed back and like with her disco butt and it, there, the you know, a lot of filmmaking comes down to these minute, ridiculous, joyful moments that are, <laughs> you know, of te- of technical uh, necessity um, that come out in a really goofy way. 
Yeah. That's, I like that. That's, that's the behind the scenes. That's the trick if anyone is trying to, again, make their own stuff right now. That's a good, I feel like that's a good pro tip to have out there. Get yourself a friend who can wag their ass in front of the camera. <laughs> uh, Two hours. By the way, I, I don't know if like this was something that you thought, but, and again, the much more comedic, I think, but I kind of also from this film got a very like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf vibe, like early on, you know, of just this, like, we are stuck at a party and everyone's drinking too much and it's kind of uncomfortable, <laughs> but I think you go in a much funnier place, but I, I don't know if that was like a touchstone that you thought about or anything, but that was at least something that I got watching it. Yeah, I definitely think Jack's character is the one that has the the cathartic moments. Um, and yeah, it, it was it was a really surreal experience because we actually lived in the compound. You were just staying there where while the yeah. film was shot. Yeah. So we got access to this billionaire compound and lived there and the cast and crew lived there the whole time. And so it was, you know, a mid-COVID situation where we were actually in a bubble shooting this movie in this environment, telling this story. And I think some people were maybe, I don't know, it was a pretty happy set because we got to drink all the wine that was in the cellar. I don't know if it was biodynamic <laughs> or not, but um, it was actually extraordinary. It was a luxury. It did not feel at all like Virginia Woolf shooting this movie. It felt like not. being at summer yeah. camp. It was like the greatest three weeks of my life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of, Finding those moments was the work of the actors and the and the and Michael Tennant and Britt just really drawing on their own personal experience. And I think Michael, I can owe that all to Michael Tennant and his great writing. Nice. Well, how much was it uh, was like scripted and how much was improvised? So the movie was scripted. When I received the script, I was like, it's 90% there. We changed about 10%. We really changed the third act. We tampered the most with the second and third act and Michael was amazing at collaborating and, and doing revisions and really working to get it finely tuned. And we would shoot the scenes precisely as written. And then once we got it, we would riff and I would encourage everyone to riff their balls off and pitch jokes. Yeah. So ultimately I think what you see in the final cut is about 10 to 15% improvised and then 85 to 90% exactly as written. Oh, okay. Nice. Uh, all right. So we dropped a lot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so what, what's next for you? I mean, so the, this was the dream you wanted to come out and you wanted to direct and now you're doing it. So like, what, what's the new, uh, you know, what's on the vision board now? So the vision board now, uh, there's a couple movies that I'm attached to direct that we're in the process of casting and we have some talent attached to them and it's super exciting. That's a new world to me of having producers send a script to, you know, your, your, your heroes and then them say yes. So I feel very fortunate in that area. And then I have my own script that, um, we, uh, that I, you know, did a draft of, uh, you know, in the summer and, I shot a, a version of it, but it involves a lot of stunts and we're in doing VFX right now. Oh, nice. We had a Marvel fight coordinator um, help us with our stunts and it's an international spy action comedy. That that, that um, sounds super fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just uh, traveling and looking at locations and talking to film commissioners in Marrakesh and Rome and um, exploring 
how we're going to pull this off. So it's very exciting. That Yeah, that sounds awesome. That's that is the dream. Like, yeah, you're traveling around shooting, shooting spy thrillers. Like, yeah, fantastic. Like, no, that's awesome. Yeah. Very excited for that. Is there anything else I have not asked you about that you want to mention or want to talk about? You know, well, to circle back to my love of cats, which was really mm-hmm. the first question that you asked me. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think we I think we mostly covered it all. I will say that the, one of the best parts of shooting Pretty Problems was, aside from the talent and success of the film, that it was great that uh, the producers let me have my cat on set during the shooting of the movie. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that really answers everything, though. I think that that was the one question you didn't ask me was about my cat status during production. And now that we've ticked that off the box. Well, now, uh, uh, well, I think the question then is, the so is the cat going to be there for the spy thriller? Like, are you going to take the cat I think so. I didn't take the cat on the location scout to to Morocco. Well, that's not the, I mean, the cat's waiting for you to do that part. That's the legwork. And then the cat's going to show up when it's like time to roll. I think the cat's going to come. The cat came to South by Southwest. Oh, nice. For problems. Yeah. We have a, we have a, maybe a little bit too codependent of a situation she was a quarantine kitten but no it works well for everyone it's everyone's doing great so i think the cats yeah cats in the movie coming to the next shoot 100 percent. what's the cat's name uh her name's kika which is short for eureka okay so eureka pantera is that eureka pantera (laughs) (laughs) i love it yeah it's great all right well this was so much fun i really enjoyed talking to you Um, thank you so much. It's great to be you. Great to talk. Thanks for asking about Pretty Problems. I hope people enjoy it and watch it this weekend. And yeah, watch Pretty it. Problems for sure. Yeah, it's great. There you go. Absolutely delightful, right? I really enjoyed this chat. I hope you did too. If you did, make sure to go to hobotrashcan.com or wherever you're listening to this. Look for other interviews. We got a lot more in the archives you can check out. Also, Pretty Problems is available to watch right now on Hulu, so make sure you watch that. And support writers and actors. Uh, They really need the support right now, and as I said at the top, they are fighting a just cause. And remember, question everything. Hobo Radio is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on iTunes. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. Hey guys, it's Sean. And Carter. From Potato. Salad. Marmalade. Eight. 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 Potato Salad Marmalade. Another podcast here on the Peak Sloth Network. Check it out.